Welcome to the Money Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm joined by my co-host, Essien. If you guys want to learn more about saving, investing, or any other financial tips, you've come to the right place. On today's show, we have guest Andres Bustamante. He's a real estate investor and real estate agent located in the Austin, Texas area. Andres has accomplished a lot at just 25 years old. I think you guys are really going to like his story. It's super inspiring. And look out for a very interesting real estate investing strategy that he does for a very low down payment. Yeah, and let's not forget that he became a real estate agent at the early age of 19 years old, all while he was in college as well. So I want to let you guys listen to the whole episode so you know exactly how his journey came to be. So with that, let's get into it. Andres, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Money Curious Podcast. Thank you guys for inviting me. Very much appreciated. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So just can you give a quick background of who you are for our listeners, what you do, where you live, uh, anything like that? For sure. I was born in El Paso, Texas, and I went to the University of Texas at Austin when I was 19. At first, I thought I was going to be supply chain manager. But then at the end of the day, I had a, an internship when I was 19, right after freshman year in Juarez. And that wasn't really something that that enticed me as much. So also during freshman year, actually, I got my real estate license. So that was when I was 19 in 2016. And throughout my years as a, uh, as a UT Austin student, I realized that I really, really enjoyed real estate. I really enjoyed helping people. I did apartment leasing and through apartment leasing, I was actually able to pay for my college and also to pay for my living expenses, which was amazing. So it kind of opened my eyes to the, to the fact that I could really not have a boss, which was something that I liked a lot and also work whenever I wanted. So that kind of opened my eyes to the power of real estate and after I graduated, like I said, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew real estate was great because it gave me a lot of freedom and also well, obviously money. When I graduated, I thought I was going to do a W-2 commercial real estate. Then I decided to take a leap of faith and stick with six months of doing real estate. So at 1099, you don't really get paid until you sell a home, you know, or help a family more so, not sell a home. It's more so helping a family. And... It, I mean, I stuck with that, found a great mentor by cold calling him. His name is Diego Corzo. He was on Bigger Pockets, And I mean, after that, it's just been a great journey so far as a real estate investor and agent in Austin, Texas. Wow. So one thing I want to touch upon is that you just said that you pretty much worked your way through school and you were able to pay for college. Did you have any student debt when you came out? Thankfully, I didn't. So mm-hmm. one of the things that was really helpful was that I was in state in state tuition so i think tuition was like around twelve thousand or so per year and i mean hindsight i'm wearing the french jersey right now because i (laughs) i lived in france actually when i was 16 i was blessed enough to live in france through a youth program and living in france when i was 16 with a host family i didn't know any french they didn't know any Spanish or English. So it was Google Translate for me for the first two months. That's awesome. That, yeah, <laughs> it was insane, actually. It helped me become very independent. And I think that's one of the reasons why the law of attraction brought me into real estate because it's very, very much so centered on independence and working very hard if you want to, obviously. 
and helping a lot of people if you do work hard. So that's all correlated. And I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons why the law of attraction got me into real estate and where I am right now. Through It started through France. I, I believe in that a lot. And wow. I'm repping the shirt right here. <laughs> Did you learn any French? Yes, I'm actually fluent in French. And I was actually a teacher, like a Duolingo teacher for about two years until the pandemic started. Duolingo is like an app where a lot of people learn different languages. The The biggest language platform in the world right now. That's awesome. Look at you. So many side hustles and really interesting <laughs> skills. Uh, right? com- yeah, that's awesome. Well, something that I want to go back to that you said, I found really interesting. You said um, at 19, you were interning. They found an internship in Juarez, Mexico, right? Yes. And I find that super interesting only because at 19, I don't think there's many people that are exposed to having an, uh, an internship, like an actual kind of professional role. Um, most people do have a W-2 when they're 19, but maybe it's like retail or it's, um, you know, in a service industry. So how is you being a young 19-year-old kind of exposing you to the ins and outs of a professional world? How do you think that affected you going into uh, school and then like later uh into your real estate journey, if it did at all. It definitely did because it really opened my eyes to the unfortunate situations in Mexico and how just people are paid very little and how grateful every every one of us should be that lives here in the US. And just in general with everything that I feel, well, what most people have, you know? And um, it did open my eyes to that being grateful which is very important and also to the fact that supply chain management wasn't something that i really wanted the bigger picture though for me was gratitude and also how mexico and the u.s are so different in comparison to like work life and whatnot you know so it puts everything into perspective once someone works in another country and then comes back to the u.s one thing I want to bring up as well that I want—I don't want people to gloss over—is the fact that you worked your butt off all throughout college, and you graduated with no debt. And I know for a fact that being a real estate agent, especially a new one, you're not guaranteed a high income. You know, you really have to work your butt off in order to get that high income. And the reason I want to bring that up is because since you didn't have any debt, you could take on that risk. Whereas a lot of people, if they have a lot of debt, a lot of student loans coming out of college. They need that W-2. They think they need that stability in order to pay off those loans first and then take that risk. So kudos to you. I think that's a great move. And that just shows the power of, you know, uh, having no bad debt on your record, you know? Very true. And yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I was blessed to, to get into real estate at a young age. I'm 25 now. And when I was 19, it was through leasing and it really scared me at first because my first client I remember she came with her parents and I was just like oh my gosh and the first apartment I took her to with her family is probably the worst apartment in West Campus (laughs) yeah West Campus is the area where all students are and I legitimately remember being at the front like I remember this vividly being at the front desk and there was like students behind and they were like saying no, like no behind the, the sales people because they were like, don't come to this place. And I, I was just like, what am I doing? <laughs> it was probably the funniest tour I've ever done. And it was the first one. So that was really scary, you know, 
doing my second one, I was just like, is this going to happen again? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. But like, okay. You said you were a real estate agent and 19, a leasing agent, correct? Yes. It's very, it was very focused on leasing and I did one sale while I was at UT during my four years. So focused on leasing more so. What motivated you to become a real estate agent? Like I said, so at first I was going to get my, I, I was a lifeguard. Me before. too. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. I, I yeah. really enjoyed it. And I had a lot of friends where I was lifeguarding. I lifeguarded mm-hmm. from 16 to 19 in El Paso. And I was going to be a lifeguard at UT Austin. And then I found out that I didn't have my life. I had to renew my license. So then I remember a buddy of mine told me, it's like, look, I think you'd be a great real estate agent. And I just got an email from this person about real estate, this company called housing scout. They're the biggest leasing company in all of the, all of Texas. So I sent that person an email. I got the interview. I got that job. I didn't really know I wanted real estate. My friend told me I, you'd be good at it. So I was like, this is one of my best friends. Um, shout out to Otoniel. And I, I just, you know, it was like a leap of faith. I took it and I loved helping people and all of the friends that I met at UT Austin needed housing. So then from there, they would tell their friends. Then I was on the UT soccer team. I was in a business fraternity, a social fraternity and a lot of other groups. So all of those people would come to me as the educator and the leasing person. And that's how I got my first sale through one of my friends that I helped. And she was like, Hey, my friends, she thought he was looking to lease. And I called him and I was like, Hey, what's up, brother? Uh, you know, what can I help you with? And he said his budget, it's like 1 million to 3 million. Wow. Is that all? Yeah. (laughs) I, I had no experience with sales whatsoever. So I told him, look, I know what you want and I'll send you an email the next day. I didn't know what he wanted, but I knew I'd figure it out. So I didn't know anything about sales. I consider myself a very personable person. So I was like, I'll be the relationship guy and I need to find the best person in my leasing company that has done a lot of sales. So I partnered with that person and he dealt with like all of the sales part of it. And I dealt with the relationship side of it. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. And we sold that condo for 1.1 million when I was 21. Wow. That was, that was amazing. That must've felt amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So based off that experience, what would you say is, Uh, an important or several important characteristics of being a good real estate agent from what you were saying it sounds like being that relator between your client and um, other people that are working on your team and yourself as well like that seems to be a key point but do you you think there's others it's definitely always people work with you if they trust you so the thing here is we well myself as a real estate agent i have to ask the right questions to really get into the needs of my clients because if i don't know what my clients want then it's up to me it's not up to them to tell me i have to ask the right questions so it's always the most important thing is asking the right questions and then also really developing that relationship and being genuine and honest that's also something that's super super important and then the next thing is being an educator so I need to educate my clients on the market and set the right expectations. That, that for me is one of my big whys, like being an educator. And I felt through educating, thankfully the people have come to me as opposed to me being like needy and whatnot. So that's how it's become way more passive in my real estate business. And I'm just very grateful to everyone that's helped me out with that. 
Yeah, it sounds like you really like being an agent, which definitely helps doing this full time because I'd imagine that you'd have clients hitting you up all the time. You have some clients that, you know, they'll call you for advice on a home, but they'll never actually work with you on a sale, you know, but it sounds like you still get a lot of fulfillment out of just helping them out, even though you don't get a lot of money from it, you know? Yes, no, for sure. People reach out on Instagram and I'm always happy to jump on calls, you know, and then just give advice and all that good stuff. I, I mean, people send me a message like, hey, thank you for this help because of this. I bought a home and it makes me very happy, you know. Definitely a lot of fulfillment there. So I want to, b- before we go on more with the real estate agent side, I want to go on to the investment side. Um, do you mind just giving an overview of what your portfolio looks like currently? For sure. So I got my first house hack April 30th of 2020. So that was last year when I was 24. And then I just closed on my second house hack like three weeks ago. It's supposed to close four months ago though. (laughs) It's fine. It's definitely fine. And then I have my third property under contract. That's going to be an investment property. So 20% down. Mm. And then my fourth property is going to close in June of 2022. So one thing that's insane about this is as a 1099, meaning that I'm a real estate agent and loan officers and underwriters, which are the people that give you the loan, really want to see a stable income. And through my 1099, I was full time, barely starting in this no in January of 2020. So that was like a year and eight months ago. So loan officers want to see two full years of that. And knowing that I didn't have two full years and I had been part time for four years, but they want to see full time. They're like, look, you can't qualify for this loan. The first house that I had. So I was like, okay, let's think outside the box. And thankfully I was able to get a co-borrower, a non-occupant co-borrower, which still allows me to get into a home with three to 5% down on a conventional loan. And that was my mother. She was a co-borrower. So I was able to qualify for that home and it was great. Lowest interest, lower interest rate and the low down payment because of the fact that I was a first time home buyer and owner occupant. So before we move on, you talked about house hacking. Do you mind just telling our, our listeners what house hacking is? For sure. So house hacking really is when you buy a one to four unit home or multifamily, you live in one in either one room or one unit and rent out the others to hopefully either break even cover most of your living expenses or to cash flow. And I mean, in hindsight, all of them are great because there's so many benefits to owning a home. There's tax benefits, the potential for appreciation, the rent savings because now you're not really paying rent to other people. Equity pay down is also huge because you're paying down your home with other people. And it's not like if, when I say other people, it's not like a, hey, I'm taking advantage or anything. No, you're providing living expenses. And if they're your friends, why not live with friends? Exactly. One thing that's really interesting about you is that you invest and do house hacks in like new construction properties. And not everyone is necessarily like super um, I guess can can see the benefits of investing in new construction. For example, I've in my market here in Michigan, I've looked at uh, some new construction, and it doesn't necessarily um, when I run my numbers and the kind of down payment I want to put into it, uh, the numbers don't necessarily work. I don't cash flow at all, um, and there's also big HOA fees depending on the community. 
So I'm wondering, what are some of the items and factors you look into for those new construction communities that make it work for you and make it make sense for you? So one of the big things in construction, given that right now it's a big seller's market almost all over the U.S., and whenever I say seller's market, it means that there's less than five months of inventory. Five month, less than five months of inventory means that if everything stopped today in five months, all the homes would sell in, in whatever area you guys are in. So to put it in per, into perspective, in Austin, it's about five to ten days, <laughs> which Jesus. is pretty insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually insane. So if there's five to ten days, that means there's so much competition for homes. Now, the thing with new builds is that you can get into these new builds with a low money deposit and that's about all you have to do. Some builders are now doing bids. The thing is I have a great relationship with those builders and they give me tips and hints as to which homes don't have high bids or which homes don't have any bids. So let's let's say there's a, a new build, four beds, three and a half baths. The first one that I got, the only thing that I needed to get it under contract was $1,000, that was a deposit and then at the end of the day, it took about four months to finish building that home. Once I closed, that's when I put my down payment. But I didn't have to compete. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to put a deposit, wow. watch the home being built for four months. That home, I got it under contract for 286 in April of 2020. And the craziness hadn't started yet. So the appreciation that I saw was 20K, which is still a lot in four mm -hmm. months. So I put a deposit. My home was now worth 20K more. It's a new home. There's also lender incentives, which is a huge thing. So lender incentives are if you go with the preferred lender of the builder, let's say DR Horton, that's my the first one I went with. DR Horton has in-house lenders. It's not like if they're gonna take advantage or anything, it's more so just easier for the builders to go with their lenders because they already know these lenders as opposed to going with lenders all over the place and just it being a real craze. So lender incentives, I got about 6,500 in closing costs through the lender incentives. Then there's also the warranty, a 10 to one warranty, 10 years of um, foundation warranty and roof. So if anything happens to that, it's covered by the builder warranty, two years of HVAC plumbing and electricity covered by the builder and one year of craftsmanship. If my window were to break down or something or my door stops, opening and closing i can call the builder and they fix that so that's that's one of the reasons that i love love builders i mean it's low competition if any competition the the appreciation will most likely be there and i know we're going to talk about my second house act because the appreciation there is actually over the roof and i actually want to say something i already applied for a heloc on this one home equity line of credit and I got this home for 286. This home is now worth 476,000. Oh my gosh. I know, so it was like, you know what? I'll put it under contract. Worst case, I lose a thousand. Now that has been one of the best decisions of my life. Just with a thousand dollars, I've really made about, I mean, also down payment and closing costs, obviously. The yeah. thing is it all started with that deposit. Right. Wow, there's there's a lot to dissect there. Hold on, let's let's go let's go on that back a little bit. So, before we go on, do you mind explaining what a HELOC is for our listeners? For my sure. line of credit, so, a HELOC is like a credit card that you put on your home. So let's say I have a loan on my house of two hundred fifty thousand. That's what I owe the bank. That's my mortgage. 
and my home is now worth 476. So that's about $230,000. With that $230,000, which is a difference of the mortgage and my home's value, that's the equity, the value that you already have in that home. And that's also part of your net worth. So with that equity, you can use 80% of that as a credit card and you can use that money whenever you want. And whenever you use it, whenever you tap into, let's say I tap into 50,000 of that, that 50,000 I'm being charged an interest on the other money. I'm not being charged an interest on because I haven't used it. So it's like a credit card and I can pay it off. And it's a, this HELOC is awesome because it's a 10 year interest only and amortized over 30 years. So, I mean, it's just a great product and the interest rate I got on it is 4.75. <laughs> so it's like a low interest credit card with a really high uh, credit limit. <laughs> exa yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I got a HELOC on, I'm about to close on it. And it's going to be like 130,000 that I'm going to be able to tap into whenever I want. So that's just extra leverage, you know? So what was your, you said your down payment for your first house hack was, was it three, between three and 5%? I put 10% because I saved the money I made on the million dollar sale, which was the commission was like about 30,000. So I just saved that. And that was when I was a junior. I was 21 at that time uh, or 22, fast forward to 24 years old. And that's when I closed on this, this home. So I put 10% down. But as a first time home buyer, you can put as low as 3% down with a conventional loan program. Another thing I want to touch upon is uh, with house hacking, right? All three of us know that once you buy a house hack as an owner occupant, you have, a, you're, you have to intend to live on the property for at least one year, right? And it seems like one of the benefits with these new bills that you invest in is that you're not really violating that as long as your closing date is beyond that year. You can put in the deposit months in advance, but as long as the closing date is after your previous closing date for the first house hack, then you're good, right? And you don't have to pay the down payment or the closing costs until that closing date. Am I, am I right exactly. in that? Exactly. That, that was one of the big, big realizations I made three months into living in my first house hack. And also in hindsight, one of the great things about the new build strategy is that I was in my apartment and that apartment wasn't, that apartment lease wasn't over until six months from the time I would close on my first house hack. So when I got this home under contract, I had four months to figure all of that out because I didn't want to pay six months extra in leasing. So I got a sublease. So for a lot of people that are like, oh, well, I have this sublease and this and that new build strategy, you get something under contract, the price is locked. You have whatever timeline to get subleasers or whatever you want. So that's also a very big plus. Yeah, that's not something that I immediately like realized, not until you both said it. So that's a pretty cool benefit of investing in new builds. But I guess one thing I, I've heard with the new builds and like your specific building builders is some have better reputation than others. Some tend to use their materials in a more efficient way. They might cut costs here and there. Others are a little bit more like they want to give you quality things. So how do you vet your builders? Like I know you've built connections, but um, what are some of the key things that you looked for before creating that connection? It's more, it's so for me, there's always going to be the good and the bad for a car. There's people that are going to like a Porsche. There's people that aren't. It's really on perspective and like personal opinion. So for me, it's really, okay, who do I know and trust that's bought a home before or who will I meet? Because if I don't know someone and I don't trust someone that has already, has already bought a home here, I'm going to find a way to find someone that has. 
So that's how I did it. You know, I asked my business partners, I asked people at Keller Williams, the company that I work with. And I mean, I heard it's like, you know what? It's really the median of, yes, it's good. And then some people didn't have good experiences. So I wanted to do it firsthand. I met with the builders. I met with the sales reps and they're genuine people. So, I mean, some experiences I've had two or three that weren't the best. And then the rest have been great. You know, a lot of my clients have gotten instant equity. A lot of my clients are extremely, extremely happy with the homes they've gotten. And to also put into perspective, a lot of my clients are from the ages of 20 to like 26. In the past two months, the eight closings that I have had have been, the youngest has been 21 and the oldest quote unquote has been 26. So, I mean, they're happy getting a home. Not that it's a bad home or anything. It's just that some of the homes you need to put, you need to set the right expectations first that sometimes it might take a little longer and that with supply shortages, this might change and that might change, you know? The great thing is though that it's a new home and you're also getting the warranty. So if it's a resale home, you never know what, what can happen. You're getting the warranty. You're also getting the fact that you're locking in a price months in advance and then you get locking in the appreciation you get when you close. There's no cap. There's very little capex or maintenance you have to do with these new bills. This is a great strategy, I think. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's great. And the second house hack that you were talking about, which you you hit it right on the dot, was uh, that I I initially was like, no, I have to wait a whole year to buy another home because it's going to be a resale. And it was like straight in my face, the new build strategy. I had been getting clients under contract every time. And it hit me one time in June when I got one of my buddies under contract, the builder, the sales rep, his name is Dean. And he's a really good friend of mine now. And he was like, yeah, these are closing in June of next year or like April of, oh no, he said April to May. And I was like, okay, wait. So I closed on my first house hack in April of 2020, if this one is closing in 20, April of 2021, can I get it under contract? So through the great relationship I had with the loan officer, because I brought her a lot of business and she's awesome, and the great relationship I had with the sales rep, I was able to get this second home under contract for only $3,000 deposit in a crate. This was when Austin was absolutely nuts, crazy. <laughs> Think, things going for 15 to 30% over asking, uh -huh. The homes being on the market for three days, appraisal waivers, everything. So I didn't want that to be me. And I'd been seeing the homes appreciate and appreciate and appreciate. And I got this home. This is actually insane. I got this home under contract for three thirty four thousand for only three thousand dollars. So the home at that at that point three hundred thirty four thousand. I closed on it three weeks ago, and this one this home is now selling for around four hundred and ninety thousand. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so the equity that I got in it just by putting $3,000 down was like, I mean, 150,000 around there. And with builders, I could have even sold this right after you need to check the contract on this contract. I can't sell it right after I close. So there's just so many ways to be savvy with this. And there's also so many ways to, to have an exit strategy with new builds as well. Awesome. That's that's genius. Like I have no idea, wouldn't have an idea of how to achieve this, but you did it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then the, the, I mean, the third one, I also, so actually putting into all of this into perspective, new builds build in phases. So what I mean by phases, phase one's going to have a hundred home phase two, 
is going to have around 75, let's say, yada, yada, yada. So with the community, Lennar Greenwood, I have plenty of my, my friends in that community. That's the first phase. So imagine when phase six is finished and the same floor plans are going to be built. There's so much opportunity for the new floor plans to be priced at a higher point. So now that means that this exact home, the same home that my friends bought, is worth more. Because single family homes and one to four units are always priced based on what other similar homes have sold for. So that's why also the new build strategy, if you can get in in a first phase, is also great. And the third home I got, $2,000 deposit, it's gonna be an investment and it's a first phase out of the out of four. So that, that home I got for 320 and now it's selling for 450. So that's my third home. Well, okay, so yeah. I'm really curious. Why does it work in the Austin, Texas real estate market? Uh, I don't know if it, it, it obviously won't work everywhere. What is one key thing that makes it work in the real estate, in that Texas market? It does work with the right expectations. So my expectations for the, for 2020 was to make a cash flow of 200. Now my expectations in August of 2021, I'm not going to cash flow. So those are my expectations because I know my market. So it's really based on the right expectations and what your goals are because my goals might be different. So let's say Laura, you say if this works, so for you, my goals might be different from what well, your goals might be different from my goals. So it might work for different people. So mine was like, okay, living for free and cash flowing at least 200. Those were my goals for the first year. Now my goals have changed. It's more so getting in in this crazy market and legit paying like 800 on my own of my mortgage. Those was, that's me just spitting numbers out because I'm not going to be buying single family homes anymore. It's going to be more commercial based. But if that, if that was my expectation now and my goal through my expectations, I'd say getting a home. And if I'm house hacking three plus bedrooms and paying at least that, I mean, max 800 out of my pocket. So you ju just casually mentioned uh, what you're going to be doing from now on is going commercial deals. Uh, do you mind just explaining for the listeners, what are your goals next? Like you, you explained in the beginning, you have two house hacks. You have another house that you're closing in next year. I think 2022, you said. And then you also have an investment property. What's next for you in terms of your real estate portfolio? So for me, the scale of single families, it was a bit slower than what I wanted. And also the management, trust me, I absolutely hate managing tenants. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. And I was just like at four houses, I'm good. In June of 2022, I'm going to have my four houses and that's going to cash for like around 3000 and I just wanted to scale faster and I joined commercial groups and like a mindset coaching as well, which has been amazing. So I want to buy a retail center, 35 to 80,000 square feet. And I want to get it in San Antonio or Dallas. I've been cold calling and whatnot. And I'm just, I'm just really excited. You know, the retail centers really attract me and also the commercial aspect of scaling faster and just doing something different that's out of my comfort zone because this is out of my comfort zone and i know that if i don't do it i'll never know it'll always be the what if and if i do do it if i mess up i'll learn from it but i know that i will be able to okay you know what commercial is in my thing because i've done it as opposed to commercial is in my thing that i haven't done it 
So one thing I want to touch upon, you said you have a mindset coach, if I heard that correctly, right? Yes. How has that experience been? We actually just had an interview with one of my friends. She's also a mindset coach. Uh, could you explain for the listeners, you know, how your experience has uh, been with that, that coach? It's been amazing. I really think that the progress that I've made and my goals couldn't have come to fruition without firstly just starting with the mind because that's like 99% of it and obviously action massive action and mindset those are the two most important things mindset coach is really someone that asks you the right questions to really get deeper into okay what are my limiting beliefs that I've had that have been had started from my childhood and that subconsciously are still present just that we're not aware of that because this has just become the continuous um, path that we've taken subconsciously. That's huge. Limiting beliefs are just huge. And then from there, I learned a lot about affirmations, visualizing my goals, attracting my goals through the law of attraction. The first book that started it all was The Power of Now and by Eckhart Tolle, I believe. That was a wonderful book. And then I've just been a big, big mindset person ever since then. I It's just amazing how limiting beliefs kind of hindered me when I was, I think all the, all the way up until, I still have some limiting beliefs and that's, that's it, I've been making improvement on that. Yeah, it's just amazing through college. I notice now that I'm like, damn, that was a limiting, limiting belief or I could have been way better on my mindset on that, you know? It's just realizing it, becoming present in the now, not being in the past or the future. It's present mindfulness. I've learned so much through my mindset coach and just through reading. It's been great. I was going to say, this is a subject I really love because uh, a lot of people don't realize a lot of these things you do, it starts in the mind. And if you don't think you can do it, then you're not going to do it. And it sounds cheesy, but it's 100% true. Until you accept the fact that it is true, you're not going to take the steps necessary to change your mindset, you know? Oh, yeah. No, that's that's huge. It's It, it all starts with realization and ch just changing the habits, like you said. I mean, insanity is when you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. So you need to change course, you know, deviate from that. But one thing you did share with us actually is that you have a whole routine, uh, which I find really interesting um, for myself personally. I am not a morning person. I'm actually a night owl. So I like to do, like, prepare myself for the next day, later in the evening, maybe into, like, so the early hours of the, <laughs> the morning, right? Uh, but can you kind of share with us and share with our listeners what your morning routine looks like? Because I think uh, that's part of what makes you so successful and so motivated to, like, you know, achieve all your goals in the day or the week. Thank you. I mean, the yeah, the morning routine, it's just really, it really started with Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning. That book, I recommend it to anyone. That book is a game changer, just a game changer. So for me, the morning really starts off with the night before. So at nine, I stop using my phone, 9 p.m. I don't use my phone. I put my phone to charge like on my desk and as far away as possible from my bed. I never, never want to use my, my phone in bed. That's that's like very bad because um, whatever you like, the last things you do is kind of how you're going to wake up, you know, and it's pretty insane. So I always try to like do my gratitudes at night and just visualize my day and write down my day. So, for example, this planner, this is what I planned the day before. And um, 
yeah, like I said, my top three, my top three things. That's what I plan the day before. I also put my phone to charge by 9 p.m. and I stop using it at 9 p.m. Then I wake up at 4.45 in the morning. I do my bed right away because I always start off with wins. Even as small as doing your bed, it just gets you in the right mindset. So do that, brush my teeth as well. And then I go to the gym. I get to the gym around 5, 5 a.m. I do a workout for like an hour and then get home, take a cold shower, cold shower, like usually like three minutes, five minutes. And I, so it's pretty insane. <laughs> the first times I took a cold shower, it was so, so cold. And now <laughs> I'm legitimately like, is my water not cold anymore? Is I've, I've legit asked like a builder <laughs> if my water isn't cold or anything, but they told me this is how all the water, the cold water is. It's just more so because I got so used to it, which is just insane. <laughs> it might be like working to your benefit so, in Texas. It's hot out there. I know. It's, <laughs> it's so funny. I'm just like, wow, I've gotten so used to the cold now that it's... It's, it's a normal like, shower. It's a normal yeah, shower. <laughs> got a book about that that's great as well uh, by Iceman. Oh, I forgot the name of the book. But Oh, the... Oh, I forgot it. But it's... The guy's name is Iceman or something like that. Awesome book. So after I take a cold shower... I then do meditations. Sometimes I do like my own breathing, which is inspired by that book, The Iceman. I've heard that it's the breathing method or something like that. And, and or sometimes I do like a, the Calm app, which is a guided meditation. So that's 10, 15 minutes. After that, I do my own affirmations. Then I visualize how I wanna see my day and my goals. So this year I've been visualizing helping 50 or more families. So also the words we say are so important. It's not make, it's not selling 50 or more homes. It's helping 50 or more families. And then also, also 50 or more is important because if I'd say 50, it's crazy how we reach that goal and that's where we stop through the mind and through the law of attraction. Just reach 50, okay, boom, that's it. If you say 50 or more, it's really bringing in that abundance and the potential for more than 50 families helped. So 50 or more families helped being a general partner and at least one commercial deal. So at least one commercial, not just one, at least one commercial deal. General partner is like the person that's in charge of getting the contractors and this and that. Limited partner is more so a passive person in the deal. So I wanna be that active person. So that, and then 7,000 or more in passive income per month by the end of the year. So those are the three things I visualize on a daily. And then after that, I scribe. Scribing is like writing down my thoughts and the three things I'm grateful for. I didn't think I was going to like it, but now I love it. Is it's important to either talk to someone about what you're feeling and your emotions or writing it down. That's been huge for me. And then also the gratitudes, very important. So by the time I'm done with that, it's around seven. So from seven to 7.30, now I read. Right now I'm reading The Defining Decade which is a great book. Oh, that is a good book. It's amazing. It's it's a game changer. So I'm reading that one right now. And then after I finish, <laughs> it's all my calendar. I'll have to send you guys my calendar because it has <laughs> everything, everything that I'm saying. Then after I finish, I get breakfast and I do gratitudes again, but like grateful for the food that I have that I'm eating. And then once I finish that, it's around like eight, and then I do real estate stuff. 
like a lit practice for a listing presentation and learn a zip code in Austin. And then I do one of my first tasks that I have on my notebook. Once I finish that task, which is around 8.45 or 9, that's when I look at my phone for the first time after not looking at it for like a long, long time. Because I've known that when I look at my phone before I finish everything, I'm going to get so easily distracted. So that's helped me like, okay, I'm about to finish everything. Now I can look at my phone. That's also an incentive kind of. So that has been huge. Not using my phone during the time I finished all those all of those routines has really helped me out. It's a very so long routine. It, so, it sounds like you pretty much have an entire day before most people wake up. <laughs> it's, That's it's what it sounds true. like. <laughs> it's true. And I've really noticed how I've acted different when I don't do my miracle morning as opposed to when I do do it, you know? And it's just, it's so crazy how the morning, there's so much time. And I feel like after 9 p.m., I'm not really doing anything productive. So why not sleep at 9 p.m., you know? Mm. Do you think that it was hard for you to get into it first? Like, was there a period of adjustment in making this part of your routine? For sure. Definitely. It's not, it's, it, it, it will take some time and it's also more so like progress and being someone that writes down progress, because if you're not seeing progress or you're not aware that there's progress, people are going to start giving up. So it's maybe starting 45 minutes from the time you usually wake up and then starting an hour before and then an hour and 30 and then adjusting, you know, because if you're not, if you're not taking down your progress, how are you going to know that you are actually making progress? How are you feeling every day now that you've woken up earlier? And also it's a big mindset thing because a lot of people have told me, look, Andres, I'm not a morning person. And it's really like what we're telling ourselves. If you're saying you're not a morning person, is it because maybe you slept at 1 a.m. one time and try to wake up at 5 a.m.? Well, then that's different because that's four hours of sleep as opposed to trying to wake up sleeping at 9 p.m. until and then waking up at 5 a.m. That's about eight hours of sleep. So it's really what we tell ourselves. If we're saying we're not morning people, kind of what's that deeply rooted subconscious habit that we have that has made us not a morning person? So it's kind of delving deeper into that, you know? So it's very, very, it's crazy how it's all about the words we say and the habits we've developed to where it's like, maybe I'm limiting myself to something that I could be doing. Yeah, are you calling me out? <laughs> I said I'm not a morning person. No, that's what I, I thought, just, that's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's common and I thought I wasn't a morning person either. It's just that I was in college and I was going out and then working and then this and I try to wake up at this hour and I didn't have a schedule. And I would always sleep like at 12 and wake up early and I said, no, I'm too tired. That was more so because of the fact that I did things prior to then be tired, you know? Yeah, totally get that. No, but I think that what you said, what you mentioned, you know, start 45 minutes earlier then do an hour earlier, then do an hour and a half earlier, you know, let those small incremental steps, like you mentioned, progress, that's what's going to set, get the ball rolling. You can't expect to be like, I don't know, the, like, let's, let's relate it to fitness. Like you can't go to the gym for a whole, one whole week and then automatically see like it's defined biceps. Yeah, right. Sure. But if you take like, um, if you take, you know, progress pictures at the end of each week and then go back to them a month later, then you'll see the little differences, right? Definitely. I mean, if you don't take note of your progress, it's just a subconscious thing that we think, oh, I didn't really see much progress. 
that it's I'm back to where I was at. Once you start writing it down, like, damn, I can feel different emotions and I have made progress. It's once you visually see it. So many people are visual. So need to write it down and it coming from you is the best way to put it. That's something I personally struggle with. It's hard for me to, because like my mentality is I just, I'll just go, whatever I have to do, I'll just figure it out and I'll just keep moving and I'll just make the progress uh, for myself. But I never actually track what I'm doing. Right. So for example, in the gym, um, you see a lot of like really serious bodybuilders or powerlifters or whatever. They carry a notebook, right? And they write down what they're trying to what they're trying to do that day or how many reps they did that day, uh, how much weight they did that day. I've always considered myself someone who is in pretty good shape and takes his fitness seriously, but I've never actually took those steps to write it down. And because of that, I haven't seen the progress that I wanted to. Right? It's the same thing with my meals. I don't actually necessarily track my meals. I just general. I just do general healthy eating. Right. But because of that, I don't see the progress that I want. So what you said was 100% true. It's something I should definitely work on. Because you probably are making progress, just that you don't realize it until you write it down. or you Exactly. The words, the words we say are so important. So with me, it's like whenever, whenever I'm speaking with my team, we always have Monday calls. Instead of like, we always do wins and challenges, not struggles. Because a challenge is something that you will most likely overcome. And if you don't overcome that, you're gonna have a learning lesson from that. Whenever it struggles, it's always like, okay, the struggle, what do you relate struggle to? Well, probably something that I'm not gonna be able to get, achieve or something. So whenever it's like, okay, a challenge, looking forward to it mm-hmm. and the perspective change of, if I fail, I'm failing forward because I'll learn from it. That's also something that has been huge. My vocabulary has changed drastically and I notice when people say those words, and also I try to never use the word but, I almost never, never ever use that. I always want to say the word and. Because when you say the word but, it's like negating the first sentence. You stop hearing after that, you know? So it's just so small, the small, like, kind of the, the way we speak and the mindset stuff that I feel has been the biggest change in, in myself. And I've... I'm so grateful for the authors and the coaches and the friends that have helped me with that. <laughs> Wins versus challenges. I am 100% going to use that in the future. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, Andres, you know, we've been talking about some really great things here and our time is just about up. I wish we could go into even further into your mindset strategy because honestly, I need to check myself apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, I really appreciate all those tips that you, you've shared with us today and I can't wait to start using them a little bit more in my morning routine, but also in terms of like investing in, in real estate, you've really opened up some of my, my eyes to what some of the possibilities are that I could kind of research into. So thank you. I'm happy to hear that. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Well, with that, I do want to give the opportunity to sh- for you to share where people can find you. Where are you on social media? For sure. So Facebook, Andres Bustamante, B-U-S-T-A-M-A-N-T-E. And then on Instagram, which is where I'm most active, it's Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S, B-U-S-T-A-T-X, Andres Busta T-X. And I recently started using TikTok. It's more so just to like use that platform to post on Instagram, though. TikTok and Instagram, they're the same usernames. Okay, awesome. Cool. We'll be we'll off TikTok fans pretty soon, I'm sure. <laughs> You'll be doing some TikTok dances. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll be dancing. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. Well, Andres, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We really appreciate everything you've shared with us. And that's a wrap. Hey, listeners, you've reached the end of another great episode of the Money Curious Podcast. Go ahead and share that episode with your friends, your family, on your social media platforms, and also make sure to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. With that, we'll see you next time.